everyone, and welcome to the Band of History. Today, I'm happy to welcome my friend Michael Kohler, a musician and the editor of the Band of History, for a conversation about a song in the band's catalog that is meaningful to him. We discuss the various versions of this song, its history, the ambiguity around who wrote it, and the lyrical meaning, and a few side tangents here or there. So enjoy the conversation with my friend, Michael Kohler. All right, Mike, we're here. We're, we're back for another, uh, another song. And this week, we're, we're going to be talking about one of my like favorite songs, obviously one of your favorites too, uh, a sleeper hit, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, do you want to tell me what song you decided to pick? Yeah, so uh, I decided to go with Twilight, which, uh, you know, for the casual band fan, they may not know it. They may not know it well. They may not know uh, the history behind it. Uh, and the thing that I love the most about this song, which we'll we'll dive into here, is that we have this recorded history of the iterations of the song and how it was put together and how it got from song sketch to completed song that was released as a B-side and later on uh, the first greatest hits album. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited about it, and I'm excited about it for multiple reasons um so yeah i'm ready to get into, get into it cool yeah it's it's a very interesting song as as you've alluded to it's a non-album single b-side um which for fans of groups like the beatles was quite common some of their best songs were non-album singles double a sides they would do a lot of just because of the potent songwriting chops that that group had obviously um but yeah, this was a B-side to uh, Acadian Driftwood. Um, so Northern Lights, Southern Cross era band, later era, original golden era band. Um, and yeah, it's one of the unique examples, I think, of hearing the song in some form of its early infancy all the way through what was recorded and released and then yeah, other versions by the members as the years go on all the way into the 90s and, and so forth, right? So, yeah, and it caught on. I think one of the first things I wanted to ask about was, does the song having the shelf life that it does amongst the band fan fandom, does it surprise you that it didn't appear on Northern Light Southern Cross for an album that is so shorten its runtime it's a tight economic like eight song album is does it surprise you that twilight didn't appear on that album so uh great question and my answer is no but my answer is no because of what the song ended up being um so the the song that was released the version that was released uh as that b-side to acadian driftwood for me doesn't really fit in with sonically with the rest of the album uh it's got kind of this reggae kind of feel to it and it ends up to me it actually fits a little bit better with islands um with the kind of the sonic uh landscape that garth puts together with all of his uh wizard wizardry um with the keyboards and, and things like that um so it doesn't surprise me uh it surprises me that it wasn't released really as a as a a single or you know put out there for for more people to hear um 
when it first came out because it is such a good song lyrically. Um, I love the lyrics to the song. I love the idea behind, you know, twilight of life, you know, being this time for self-reflection and, you know, being a time, you know, when I, when I listen to it, um, and I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself now because we have three versions of this song that we can talk about and we have three different versions of the lyrics. Um, but you know, this song that, that Robbie wrote just is, it's simple in its, uh, in its story and, and what it's trying to get across, but it's just, it, it's a little haunting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, it definitely has a, you know, people throw the word vibe around a lot, but it definitely has a very particular vibe to it. Um, but let's, let's, let's talk, you know, we're going to talk about all the versions, but let's talk first, I guess, actually about the recorded version, the first version that audiences would have heard, which is actually, technically it was a single edit, uh, which isn't much different than the edit that would have appeared later. Like, I think it's a, only a set, a couple seconds different, um, and you mentioned it has like a reggae feel. It's definitely more produced with drums and 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 synth and everything like that. What do we think about this version? Because I think for a lot of folks, maybe I'm wrong, but for a lot of folks then during the period of this would have been released and subsequently for a long time, this would have been the primary and only version people would have heard. Maybe you get where I'm going with it, but... What do you think about that being the primary version that people would have heard of this song? So, yeah, so this this version to me, yeah, the one that, that everyone heard, I think there was a reason why it wasn't given, you know, the put out with the, the same amount of effort that, you know, some of the other songs from the album came out. And that's why, you know, as, as Levon said in this Wheels on Fire, he said, it was a reggae song that we liked enough to use as a B-side. So this was not a song that the group was in love with. Uh, and, you know, that that's coming from Levon. And this was at a time when, you know, I don't think he was as enamored with Robbie's writing as he probably was, you know, five, six, seven years uh, beforehand. Mm -hmm. But it's a little overproduced for me. Um, I love hearing Rick sing this song. It's beautiful. He goes on to do some really beautiful versions of it later on his, in his career when he was playing some solo shows uh, in the late 90s. Um. And if this is the only version of this song that I had ever heard, I would have liked it and it would have been fine and it would have had a nice vibe to it, but it probably wouldn't have cracked my top 20 band songs. Yeah, no, it's, I agree. Um, you know, people have been critical in the past of some of the sheen, I guess, that is on Northern Light, Southern Cross and kind of that late era, uh, seventies band, um, I don't necessarily agree with that, especially when it pertains to Northern Lights on the Crowd. I think it's a beautiful album. I think it it benefits the band to have something diverse in their catalog. The early stuff is obviously what a lot of people love, including myself, but it is muddy. It is it is a little rough around the edges, and that's what makes it special. But showing their capability in the studio to put some polish on their material gave us some of, I think, their most enduring songs. You know, it makes no difference uh, Ophelia, things like that. Right. Um, 
but this one definitely doesn't benefit. I think you're right in like the observation around like this fits on islands a little bit more. This fits in the right is rain, let the night fall kind of like era. And I think if you put this song on islands, islands gets even stronger because I still think it's great, but it would have sequenced better. It's a little bit more tropical. It's a little bit more like soft, easy listening. Um, but you know, now that we have all these other versions, I think it's really hard if you're a fan of this song that you're not listening to one of the many other versions that are available on Spotify or whatever else or wherever you're listening to music, right? And to to speak to your to your point about islands, um, you know, when that when the remastered version of that came out in the early two thousands that was one of the extra songs on the cd it was it yeah. was the yeah the b-side single version of of twilight and that was my first experience with the songs my first experience with twilight was hearing it at the end of islands so you know it fits sonically to me um and i think the other add-on in there i think it was just another um version of georgia i think is what uh what was on there i always thought it was always so interesting to me to have the remastered version of Northern Lights and the remastered version of Islands because you've got, you know, two versions of Twilight, you got two versions of Christmas Must Be Tonight. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a musician, as somebody that has, you know, spent years performing band songs, being able to hear how they went through the progression of getting to the final version of that song and what the instrumentation is supposed to be, what the you know, who's singing the mm-hmm. vocals because that's the most interesting part to me if any band song is who's singing the song why are they singing the song i know when we mm-hmm. talked when we had our little round table um uh about moondog like that was a big part of the conversation was why why was this person singing this song why was that person singing that song so it's, to me it's just it's so interesting to to hear all those different versions and to see mm-hmm. uh yeah to try and figure out why the decisions were made um but again like sonically really fits in with with islands um and so i can i you know again i I understand why it wasn't released as part of northern lights what's another interesting thing about this i think as well is the band started including this in their live set in late 75 76 there's some recordings of there of it I, i find that fascinating because um the band didn't change their set list very much uh it was you know, a great point and uh, look at that was actually our friend Annie. She wrote an article uh, recently about the band on on the 74 tour with Dylan and how they kind of stuck to their kind of hits and they stuck to their hits on that tour. But I think they always played it very safe in the live setting with their material often. Um, And you get very rare instances of them pulling out songs from their deeper catalog. And out of nowhere, you have this non-album B-side pop up in their live set, like, and then pairing that with, you know, Levon's comment in in his book, it's like, interesting. Somebody must have really liked this song, you know? Maybe Rick really loves singing it. Maybe Garth wanted to really kind of jam it. Like, maybe Robbie wanted it. Like, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I... I find I find it very interesting that they started including it almost immediately in their live set. Yeah, and I, I mean, do you know? Did they ever play it after they reformed in the '80s? I don't think so. I don't think I've ever no. seen it. Um, 
which makes sense. It's a you know it's a later era Robbie song. Uh, yeah, so that kind of kind of fits the bill. But yeah, that that was something that stood out to me when I was you know doing a little bit more research on today. Um, to get ready for today. Um, so yeah, so let's 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 take it back to the beginning. So this is where it gets interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we've we've talked a bunch. You and I have talked a lot, and I I don't know if the listeners know as much about my background, um, but I am a hardcore Levon guy and a hardcore Garth guy and have been for about 25 years now. Um, but when the band put out the musical history box set, yeah, there were maybe two or three things that really stood out to me. The first one was the song sketch of Twilight. Sure. And that version where it's just Robbie on piano and singing... And it's, I mean, it just has such an impact on me. You know, Robbie's delivery, Robbie is is not the greatest singer in the world, but I've always really liked his voice. Hmm. And, you know, if Robbie is, is the fourth best singer in your band, I think you're in, you're in pretty good shape. Over by the wild wood, hot summer night. In the tall grass Till the morning light If I had my way I'd never Get the earth to roam But a young man Serves his country The old man Guards the home Don't send me No original recording of that is just so haunting and beautiful to me uh and robbie being a decent singer not the greatest singer i think just really adds to it um and so when i heard that that's when this song really took kind of that next step for me Mm -hmm. uh, and really just had a huge impact on me and i think i was thinking about this today one of the reasons i think that is is i you know i grew up in a band in high school and college, and we had a guitar player who was our songwriter who was not a singer. Uh, he's a big fan of the the show. He listens. So Jamie, uh, also named after Jamie Robbie Robertson. So he's got the whole the whole background going. But he used to give me these recordings of just him on a piano, him with a guitar, very basic singing songs, and that's how we would learn all the songs that he wrote for our band. So cool. You know, it really, it, it really sits with me and resonates with me. Um, and it's just, it's beautiful. It's such, it's so simple. Yeah. It's just, it really does it for me. Yeah. Yes. The, the song sketch is interesting. I, I really wish they had done more song sketches throughout, especially with these box sets and, and things like that. It's like similar to like Richard has some song sketches of some unfinished material that he did on live of the gateway album and things like that. And I, I find that, stuff fascinating as as a fan but as a musician too it's like you start to see how these things evolve and and how the minutiae of like a group getting together and working on material 
transforms things, right? Um, and if it's anything like that Beatles documentary, um, Get Back, you know, peeling back the curtain at all and, tr and getting any glimpse at how people start crafting songs is just endlessly fascinating, especially when you know the end product and you see them trying to get to that end product. That's very fascinating of like, how do you how do you venture that chasm between what you start with and what you end with? And is it a struggle? Is it there from the beginning? Um, all of those um, interesting things along the way. Um, I also find the song sketch interesting too from a more like slightly controversial uh, topic is when I listened to this song first, I think it was, I believe I listened to the, like just the full version that you, you hear um, uh, on, on some of the albums. And then I was on YouTube or something and I listened to a version of Rick just playing solo, I think sometime in the nineties, I think it's in some Scandinavian country. It's just him on an acoustic guitar. And I was like, Oh wow. Um, this is, this is crazy. Like this is, this is connecting with me. Over by the wildwood, hot summer night. Lay in the tall grass till the morning light comes shining. If I had my way, I'd never get the urge to roam. A young man serves his country, and an old man stays at home. Don't put me in a frame upon the mantel. Memories grow dusty, old, and gray. Don't leave me alone in the twilight. Twilight is the loneliest time of day. Whoa, 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 whoa. delicate about Rick's voice and the song, the tonal qualities of the song and the progression of the chords and everything, I, I feel like it fits like a glove. And there's no arrangement on it other than just him and his guitar. And I was like, okay, I, I'm connecting with this song. So naturally I sit down and I start trying to find any interviews or snippets or anything about somebody talking about the song. And then I found this uh, quote from Rick, which has been pulled up a few times about him uh, being asked about it because he would include it in his sets a lot. And I, I don't know the pretext of the question, but it's something along the lines of like playing Twilight and kind of uncharacteristically, I guess. Uh, he's like, yeah, I wrote this song too. And I just didn't seek credit. How do you, how do you feel about that? Because it does have some qualities. If you, if you listen to, if you listen to the material that Rick did, right. Um, it does have some of the similar qualities to it. Does it matter? Does it become like, how, how does, how does that work in your mind? So it's the, I, I actually have the quote right here. Cause I was, I found it earlier today. So the quote from Rick was, I hate to say this, but as much of a Rick Danko song, it's as much of a Rick Danko song as it is a Robbie Robertson song. I just forgot to seek credit. Robbie was very tight with sharing those responsibilities. That's why he is where he is. And that's why we are where we are. To make a long story short, he'll say he did it at all if you give him the opportunity. Uh -huh. So, you know, obviously, you know, he's saying, I helped craft this song. I just didn't push hard enough to get my credit. And since I didn't, you know, Robbie took the credit and sure. 
you know, we, yeah, we've, we've all talked about it. We've all been back mm. and forth about everything and it makes sense. You know what he's saying that, you know, if you give Robbie the opportunity, of course, he's going to take the credit and it's a business move and he was a business guy and it, and it sure. you know, kind of paid off for him. Um, when I think about this song in particular, uh, I think where, where you can really kind of see that influence from Rick is on actually on the third version of the song that we haven't talked about yet. Mm -hmm. So we have the song sketch, which, uh, you know, <laughs> Robbie actually says in an interview with Barney Hoskins, he says, yeah, they, when we were putting together the, the, a musical history, they played this for me. And apparently I recorded this. I don't even remember doing it. Like he heard it and he's like, I guess that's me. I don't remember doing it, but you know, it was mm -hmm. his way of just getting the song to the band. But when you listen to the lyrics of that version, there was a very, very clear, um, story to the lyrics so, you know this idea of of being in the twilight of life and being in the older man and not wanting to me and you know i don't want to speak for robbie obviously but the idea is not wanting to be alone in the twilight of your life don't mm -hmm. leave me alone in the twilight you know being at the end of your life and being by yourself sounds horrible and miserable like you want to be yeah. surrounded by the people you love now we fast forward to uh the remaster of northern lights and we get this early song recording of twilight and it's pretty different and pretty stark difference from the final version that we get obviously very different from the song sketch it starts with levon on vocals huh? uh which you know in listening to the three versions i think is the least good fit um is having having levon and then rick comes in but there are at least two additional verses uh, in that version of the song that don't end up making it into the final finished version that ends up uh, as the B-sides with Katie and Driftwood. And to me, those verses sound like Rick. They sound mm -hmm. like Rick's thinking, Rick's writing, Rick's ideas, trying to blend in with Robbie. So to me, that's where I feel like we're getting some of that. You know, Rick, you know, Robbie comes along with the song sketch, Rick sits down, adds a couple verses. They try it out, mm -hmm. just drums and piano. And then eventually, you know, however long, I would love to know the, you know, kind of the time frame from song sketch to when they recorded the final quote unquote version. Cause I think that's always interesting if it's a song they sat on the shelf for a couple of years or if it happened within a three week period. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that no, it's it's interesting, and then like it, that opens a whole other can of worms as to why. If if that's the case, if that's the logic that follows, which I think it's a there's a compelling case for that. Um, why would they edit it out? You know, whose decision was that? Well, most likely Robbie's, right? Um, he seems to at that point have he he's deemed to have had the most control in the studio. Like it was him and Garth toying around mainly, you know. Uh, why would you why would you remove those lyrics? Why why would you do something like that? I don't know. Maybe you didn't fit the song for him. Um, I also this is more conspiratorial and this isn't accusatory, but I, I find I find anything that's bonus or that comes out of the woodworks with the band always suspicious, regardless of whose it is, because of what we know about other things, what we know about the clear kind of like a lie and cover up that is the basement tapes release in 75 um, and, and other things. And 
that always leads me to believe with like some of this bonus material throughout the years. I'm like, are, are we trying to f swing a narrative here to like make it seem cooler than it is? Did we record this long after the fact? Did we alter things after? It's like, we'll never know some of these answers, but it's like, it's kind of brushed aside. Like when Robbie's like, yeah, I don't even remember doing this. It's like, you know, did, did we create this for this project? Because it's cool. Nonetheless, I think it's a fantastic breathy version. It reminds me too of like in the nineties when he, um, did like, uh, the night they drove old Dixie down at the piano and stuff like that. Um, I don't enjoy that at all compared to the twilight version. I think that it suits him a lot better, but maybe it's one of those things. I just, you know, just to be a fly on the wall, I guess, for lack of a better word. And like, these are business decisions when you're releasing stuff later after the fact this is to generate hype and continue to build your legacy it's like clearly with the basement tapes too there was such a mythology around it. it's like they kind of concealed the truth of it for so long until dylan released the bootleg series it's like that album is is as fake as <laughs> as it can be really right so it's like what else are we getting uh out there that's that's not real but um I even question some of the other versions too, not even just the song sketch, like some of the other versions too, right? Like the early alternative takes and stuff like that. I'm like, what's going on here? You know what I mean? Like, this is so, this is so strange. Yeah. You know, and I feel, I feel like you're like, yeah, you know, you've just popped my balloon. Like I'm a, like a five-year-old and he's like, <laughs> you knocked my ice cream cone over, uh, in the, you know, onto the ground. Um, but you know, there are lots of uh, examples of artists doing that. Uh, yes, yeah. Like Bruce Springsteen's a, a great example of that. If you, when you look at his big box set that came out in the late 90s tracks, where it was three, four albums uh, of mostly unreleased early mm -hmm. recordings, there were some things in there that they went back and re-recorded everything. Brand mm -hmm. new vocals, brand new this, brand new that. You know, and it's all part of making it sound great, but then they kind of fit it into the narrative. You don't know exactly where it's coming from. Yeah. The stone look do that too. Yeah, you look back at like like you said, like the 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 reissue and then the remix of the first two albums. Yeah. You get you get the same song a couple times, but it's different enough that you're just not quite sure what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I think about like um what was I listening to today? Um Oh man, like Yazoo Street scandal. I feel mm -hmm. like there's like three or four versions of that that are all, they all have like the same vocal track from Levon, but everything else is just slightly different. Um, mm -hmm. Juice Blues, like there's a couple different versions. So yeah, I have no idea like what's going on. Yeah, Orange Juice Blues is a, a great one, uh, actually. Yeah, the Stones did it too. Like a lot of that stuff, like Mick went back in. I, I talked to, I talked to Bob Clearmount about it because he did the band remasters, but he famously did a lot of the stone stuff too and like mick would punch all the vocals in and the great thing about mick is he still sounds the same which is just crazy but it's like there's a purest attitude in me that's just like why would you do that like that just it, it seems so wrong but yeah it's in the hunt of making things sound good and 99 percent of fans listening to this stuff don't care they don't you know so it's only for nerds like us that that, that if we take a step back and we accept the songs at face value, yeah, for what they are, yeah, I think both of us agree that the song Twilight, and by the song yeah. I mean 
the lyrics, the chord progression, the vibe. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's a beautiful song that Robbie wrote. Yeah. And then, you know, then we just get into the minutia of which version do you like better and when sure. was it recorded and does it matter and should it have been released? And, mm -hmm. you know, again, we could, yeah, we're the only yeah. ones that really care. Uh, the, I want to talk a little bit about that early alternative because we, we glazed over it a little bit. Um, but as you mentioned, there's this early, they call it, they label it the early alternative take where Levon starts on vocals and then it passes to Rick, which is very much like, it's like a weight like thing where there's really no rhyme or reason to it. It just kind of is passed. Um, and the instrumentation is built up compared to say the song sketch or some of the later renditions. Um, it's got, you know, the basics, uh, what do we feel about that version? Like, I know you said you 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 don't think it was the best to have Levon on there, but I actually think that level of instrumentation is probably kind of the sweet spot in the band arrangement setting. Yeah, so uh, I think it's, I believe it's just drums, bass, and piano. Yeah. And in all honesty, I think it's probably the best Levon's drums have ever sounded on recording. Like, they sound so clean and crisp, and obviously we're getting into, you know, 16 track recording at that point so a lot more ability to to kind of build that drum sound um but i agree with you i feel like in this case you know less is more with this song um because it's it, it is a it's a it's a lyrical song it's not a musical song it's not about the chord progression it's not about the instrumentation it's about the story that robbie's telling um with rick's help We'll throw mm -hmm. that in there just to sure. make sure Rick gets his due. Um, and so when you look at instrumentation and then you get to the finished, the you know, quote unquote finished version, and it starts with this, uh, doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo. Yeah. It's, just, it's a little campy. It's a little much. Um, so no, I completely agree. I feel like they were in this sweet spot and, you know, with this very basic backing track. They didn't find out a lot of it's when, when they got into... Yeah, the seventies would do a lot more, you know, basic backing tracks and then overdub just because you had the ability with, with sixteen track recording and then you know, moving mm -hmm. up twenty four track. Um see so yeah, I think they were they were close. Um they were they were close to having a a track that fit the song and fit the lyrics a little bit better than they ended up with. I think they were um like like you mentioned, you know, I think Garth and Robbie were in this production phase of look at all this cool stuff we can do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, as, yeah. As opposed to, you know, the first two albums when less was more now more is more is best. Um, yeah. That's an interesting thing too. It's like, it's, it's again, I think a lot of people always focus on like the band becoming less of a band and, and the songwriting not being a shared thus like the material got weaker. I think that's a narrative that we hear a lot and we, we talk about that a lot, but I also think it misses like these later era ones while there's a lot of shine and, and greatness about some of them. I think as, as we've seen with Robbie's career and his solo material being so dense and like, honestly, a lot of it's dated because he was always hunting the newest production trend, which a lot of these guys did because let's be honest, like this stuff was, it's like AI today. Like it was revelatory and they're like, hunting for the newest thing and same with garth right it kind of misses the restraint that i feel like somebody like levon and probably richard too to some extent brought to the material uh and stripped it back because like 
it, it, what I'm trying to get at is is Twilight, I think, fits the ethos of what the band was trying to do way back on their first two albums. And I can hear it very clearly in my head of how it could fit in, and how, especially on music from Big Pink, and how maybe some mandolin or some earthier tones could support this track in a way that you find on those albums and that's how you get away with building a, like a slightly bigger arrangement without it getting too crazy with the synth or the the weird kind of campy little hooks that exist in in later material and that was sparked too by my personal favorite version which is the um the version that we hear, I think it's 89, the mountain stage version. It's Rick Danko and Garth Hudson and, and band. It's arranged. It's a band, but it's very subtle. Garth is playing keys and stuff. There's some synth, but there's also some like um, pedal steel, lap steel guitar. And I'm like, mm, not very common for the band, mind you. But I was like, it, this fits perfectly. This kind of arranged, delicate piece could have worked with a bigger arrangement because for a long time I thought maybe no arrangement was the only way you could go about it but I, I think you could have done it in a different way and it could have worked all right so let me I'm gonna I'm gonna flip the, the script on you here yeah yeah I think I think you just you know kind of got into something that I've never really thought about so uh -huh. taking let's say islands and mostly islands but mm -hmm. a little bit you know Northern Lights as well. Are there songs in there that, had they been less overproduced, would be on the same bar as stuff from music from Big Pink and the Brown album? On on Island specifically, and and Northern Lights. I mean, I guess I guess the question yeah. is, you know, did they because of the times because of the situation of what was going on with recording and them as a band uh, or not so much as a band anymore. Did they overproduce? Did they take songs that could have been simplified and could have been, you know, more band like more beautiful? Yeah. I think there's a few. Um, if we're starting with islands, I, I like, I'll preface this. I like this song how it is, but I could see right as rain being done differently and included on an earlier album, probably something like stage fright or like Cahoots. Um, the saga Pepity Rouge there. I think that's a good one that feels, it does kind of feel B sidey compared to some of the story songs on the earlier album. I feel like it's Robbie's attempt at trying to rekindle some of the old magic that he had. Knocking lost John is another one. Yeah, like so, this the saga of the Pony Rouge um, was the one I was thinking of, and that kind of has that same vibe for me as like a Get Up Jake, mm -hmm. um, you know, Look Out Cleveland somewhere in there, where yeah. it's so yeah. I think I think you're on the right. I'm gonna throw out a hot take here, and I know you're not gonna like it, and other people aren't gonna like it. So if you have to have a Robbie vocal on that first album which I honestly think is the only knock because I think they should just let Richard sing to Kingdom Come fully, even though he basically does all the heavy lifting anyway. What if you put Knocking Lost John full Robbie vocal on music from Big Pink instead in a hypothetical environment? I think it's better. And this is somebody who thinks music, music from Big Pink is my favorite album. I think it takes it up a peg, putting Knocking Lost John. I think it's one of Robbie's best vocals. 
Interesting. I know you like to Kingdom Come. It's grown on you. It has, yeah. You just you yeah. saw that the other day. Uh, and you know, Robbie's Robbie as a singer has grown on me mm -hmm. to a degree. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not full. <laughs> I'm not full Robbie, but yeah, yeah. Um, but that's interesting. I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a, a playlist and I'm going to swap them and throw it sure. in there. See, see how yeah. I feel about it after a, a straight through listen. Okay. Uh, I want. I do want to get back to what you mentioned about Levon earlier, which I think is really important because on those first couple albums, you know, they really, really figured out how to have multi vocalists in the same song. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can talk is probably my favorite example, mm -hmm. uh, training lyrics, training vocals, jumping in and out, harmonizing all of that. And they tried to recreate it further. They got into their career. And I think this was one of those examples where, they tried it and you know this is this song is a lyrically from one person's point of view it is the perspective of the person in the twilight yeah. and you know trying to have two people sing the same thing didn't work um mm -hmm. and it's not to say that levon couldn't have sang it by himself mm -hmm. but there's such a drastic difference between his vocals and rick's vocals and richard's vocals that it just, it seemed, it just clashed so much. And I'm glad that when they went to do the final version, they stuck with just Rick. So yeah. it's, it's interesting to hear them trying because, you know, as, as a musician myself, I, you know, I was in a band that had three vocalists and our guitar player, it's very, very much just like the band. He would come in with a song and we would all take turns singing it. He might have an idea of who we thought should sing it, but once he played a couple times and everyone takes a crack at it, you know, everyone, you kind of hear where it should go. Uh, mm -hmm. and it works. Um, so it's interesting to me to be able to hear that and to be able to think about what that process was. And I'm glad that they realized that it didn't work. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. It's a very singular kind of narrative of one perspective. It's not multi-character. I also think like their methodology, methodology changed in a way that was such a detriment to them trying to recreate it. Like, they got away from like sitting in a circle all together and singing together and recording together and instead opted to do a lot of dubbing and coming in and out of the studio at their own chagrin and recording when they felt like it, right? Um, and I think they struggled with vocals. There's that, I, I, I talk about it actually in, the, in one of the last Waltz episodes, but when they were trying to finish and they were working on Island during that last Waltz period, the rehearsal into last Waltz and then subsequently after like, there's that passage that I include of like Rick and, and, and Robbie in the studio together. And Rick is in the ISO booth trying to do the vocal and Robbie's behind the control board and they're working together, trying to get the, trying to get the right take. And like, they struggle. They just playing out struggle. Like they are burnt out. They're done. The magic seems to have kind of dissipated a little bit. And you know, I think that is felt in these later albums and the safest route would be what I think they picked, which was good. It's like, okay, we're not getting what we want out of these dynamics. Like, let's just focus on one person singing the song because, you know, objectively, you guys are great at singing. Let's just focus on that. They they had some okay stuff, um, I think. Like on uh, Northern Light, Southern Cross, they have um, Ring Your Bell, yeah. Which I think is one, it's actually one of the most infectious songs ever in their catalog. I think it's sexy and amazing and, and groovy. And that works. But, 
you don't get a lot of that later. And somebody's going to murder me if I don't mention Acadian Driftwood. And there's multivocal there too. But um, yeah, I think I think you're right. And um, just I want to touch a little bit too on the lyrics here. I don't I don't want to skip that over because we've talked a little bit about how it evolved. Uh, there's different versions of the lyrics. And then our, our, our running theory uh, or your running theory that I prescribe to of, of the additional verses by, by Rick. Um, I find the song incredible because of the simplicity of it and how you can interpret it in so many different ways. I think interpreting it as we've talked about here about somebody kind of not wanting to spend the twilight of their life alone is a very valid interpretation I actually read it in a way the other day when I was looking at it kind of about like a guy going off to war and like dying and maybe not making it back. And it also kind of reminded me and it gave me a similar tone to like something like rocking chair, like an older man talking to somebody younger, whether it's himself or somebody else. What do you think it is about songs like this and others that are popular, uh, that are so simple in their execution and the wording and the rhyme scheme. There's nothing overly complex here, but what makes it so powerful? Is it that the, the fact that it's simple and allows you to fill in the cracks yourself or what do you think? That That's exactly it. So, and I think Robbie was really good at this. Um, mm. You know, obviously he, he wrote, he had songs that were more complicated, but you know, songs like this where, I mean, it's right there for you, and it's it's so simple that anyone listening to it can figure out what it means to them. You know, you're not you're not listening listening to a Rush song and trying to figure out what Getty Lee's trying to say, mm-hmm. or you know, whatever else kind of you know, over over the top uh, lyricists are out there. It, it, like you said, it's it's very straightforward. Um, you know, over by the wildwood, hot summer night, lay in the tall grass till the morning light. You sit there and you can picture exactly that. There's, there's no hidden meaning. It's, and so it makes it, it makes it easy. Um, you know, especially listening to to Robbie's version, it's just the vocals. It's just the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not asking you to decipher anything. It's asking you to just be in the moment. Yeah, it's, there's something romantic about it too. I think like, I think you could definitely, if you're listening to the lyrics, if it's really stripped back, like, especially when Rick sings it later on, it almost feels like a forlorn love, like somebody, you know, dealing with that lost love or like that transitionary period when you're young and you fall in love and it doesn't work. You know what I mean? There's something very simple and devastating about that. And it, it's something that appears later in their material. Cause I actually think their material got simpler as time went and some people could point to that of like, oh, that's probably because they are kind of over it. But I think it works to their advantage because I think a criticism that some have made and could be made of some of their earlier material is it can be quite dense. It can be hard to consume. Uh, and these these tracks are a lot more accessible to a wider audience. You think about it, it makes no difference. If you read those words, they're so simple. And honestly, some of the passages just to read them without the context of the music and the emotive vocal and the arrangement sound kind of bad. <laughs> like they kind of are clunky almost, but when you put it together, 
it's devastating. You can't deny how devastating that song is. It makes people cry every day. You know what I mean? So there's something about the simplicity of these later later era band songs that just hit different. Yeah. I'm sitting here, I'm looking at the lyrics, and I'm looking at this last verse, talking about don't put me in a frame upon the mantle. Mm-hmm. His memories turn us dusty old and gray. Yeah, that that sounds that's that's scary to me. Like that sounds like the the person singing this song is worried about what is going to happen to them when they're gone and what that you know what they're leaving behind. Which I think is something that you know a lot of people, the older they get, think about. They think about the the impact that they have on loved ones and family and friends and coworkers. Mm-hmm. And it can be scary. It can be scary, especially you know if you're if you were in, in the twilight of life and to not know, you know, mm-hmm. what's going to, what's going to happen to the memory of you after you're gone. That's, that's a scary thing. And that's something I think that a lot of people, you know, can definitely, uh, relate to relate to. Thank you. Yeah. And it, it it's a fascinating thing because the band spends a lot of time act, uh, acting as characters or writing from the perspective of this could be perceived as an old man or a woman, you know? And it's like, what are these 30 year old, 20 year old dudes writing about being old and like dying it's a common theme but if you think about it like sure you could and uh, you know you could put yourself in a character and write from anybody um but there's i also think of like i think people forget the context of the the lives that these guys live they saw a lot of death amongst their peers they also lived in an era coming out of like the vietnam war and stuff like a lot of people died and it's like i i find it very interesting that they write about death in this way, and and I think about it too, like the line, but a young man serves his country and an old man guards the home. That also kind of speaks. That's where I kind of started playing around with the interpretation of somebody going off to war. Um, it's quite literal there, but I feel like some of the other things fit it too. Like, you know, you have a young romance and then somebody goes off to war and then it's like, don't forget about me when I'm gone kind of story. Um, I might not come back. I might die but hopefully you don't forget me or move on or, or something like that too. Here's a thought. You know, this, this song was written sometime, I would assume 74, 75, somewhere in there. If we think about what Robbie is going through at Mm -hmm. that point, at least in the sense of what he is putting out there and has put out there about his thought process during 75 into 76, when they did the last waltz, Mm -hmm. He's afraid of dying on the road. He's afraid of yeah, yeah, of what's going to happen because of what's happened to all their friends and what's happened to their heroes and what's happened to their contemporaries. Sure, and some, this this could be his this could be his song about that. Like the, mm-hmm. the twilight could be his career. Like it could be you know it could be him worried about what's going to happen if if they keep this up. You know maybe he's the he's seeing himself as that old man that she should be home now you know he shouldn't be out there playing music anymore he's that that's a young man's game this is uh mm-hmm. you know, these guys are in their their 40s or late 30s at this point um you know maybe it's time to to slow down a little bit and enjoy life so that they're not just a dusty you know picture on a mantle at some point yeah. so i thought about that myself right i also think robbie l- didn't let on as much about I think he did think it was kind of the end, like the of of his of his you know major music career. I think he put it to bed for, and it, it you can tell because he didn't release any material as like a as a band or artist for a decade, 
afterwards. He worked on scores and stuff like that and movies and things like that. But honestly thought for a long time that he was he was done. You know what I mean? And this was the twilight. This was it. This was my shot at it. I did it. I'm done. You know what I mean? So that interpretation is very, very interesting for sure. Um, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to touch on as we as we as we come to a, a conclusion here? I don't think so. I, I you know when I was I had a lot of trouble deciding what what song to pick, um, mm-hmm. but I think I'm I'm glad that we talked about Twilight because I think uh, you know I think we we we've given people something to think about on a bunch of different levels. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I came in with the idea of just really liking the fact that we had this progression of sure. song sketch through what was released but not released on an album and, you know, kind of a throwaway. But then, you know, we really, once he started getting, once we start getting into the lyrics and the decision making and what was going on in the band at the time and Rick's involvement and the fact that it became a staple of his shows that he played later on in his his career i think it's all super fascinating Mm -hmm. uh and whether you know whether these versions were authentically shared with us or whether it was slightly more manufactured to tell a story i don't think it really matters i think yeah i think it's just an it's such an interesting insight that we don't have a lot of with the band uh and any time that i get to to dive in a little bit more and try and and try and figure out what these five incredible human beings were thinking about and contemplating and working on behind the scenes is super mm-hmm. fascinating to me. I think that really encompasses it well. I think this song and our conversation encompasses so much about the band and the conversations that I like having around it. It's complex. It's dense. It's not so black and white. It's not so simple there's layers of mystery and intrigue and things that you can pull out. And I think that's the best part about the band. And that's why I come back every day and listen to it and want to talk about it. Right. So thank you for sharing, um, and picking this song, Mike, I, I was eager to see who would pick it because it's a song that I come back to a lot right now. Um, and I'm glad that you and I got to sit down and talk about it. Me too. Thank you for having me, as always. Always a pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Thanks. Great time always sitting down with Mike. Uh, He's been on the show before. We did a panel with him on it. Um, and he obviously is uh, the long time now, the long time editor of the band of history. Um, he's got a bunch of crazy stories of meeting Garth and, and Levon. He's mentioned it before here and, and uh, he's just the greatest guy. And I'm glad he picked Twilight, uh, such a phenomenal song. And I think we had a really, really fun conversation. So if you want to follow the podcast online, be part of the conversation, see what's going on. We're all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, at the band podcast. Come join us over there. Lots of good stuff happening. If you want to contribute to the show monetarily, become a patron at patreon.com slash the band of history. 
over there, you get early access to the episodes, um, other great features like our bi-monthly book club, uh, writings, and a bunch of other fun stuff. And we have a little community over there as well that I think is really good and really fun. So go ahead and check that out. Um, definitely more coming down the pipeline in 2024. I've been really enjoying doing these conversations as part of this new series um, and some of the other stuff I've got going on. But don't, don't, uh, don't worry. The main episodes will continue as well uh, in due course. So thank you again for listening to The Band of History. I really hope you enjoyed this one and we'll catch you on the next one. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.